0: I do think though he is at war with the media
1: on another front. He feels they were wrong about him during the primary, they were. He feel like he was they were wrong about his chances during the general election, they were. And he knows he's got what, 15 20 25 million people and knows he can get a message out and bypass everybody. And I do think he, like, for instance, CNN is his target right now. Uh, Morning Joe was his target this past summer. The New York Times is his target right now. I think he feels the freedom that other people uh, have not felt in the past to go over around them and to bash them head
2: on. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the 13th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. That was Joe Scarborough from MSNBC this week discussing Trump, and his pugnacious relationship with the media. We'll discuss that and focus on the evolution of how Twitter has not only become Trump's best friend, but a transformative tool for politicians. How will journalists confront this new media evolution? I speak to Eli Stokols, a national politics reporter for Politico.com, about this very topic. Also, should liberal Americans really be worried about Donald Trump's conflict of interest with businesses and the Oval Office? How will it affect their lives? Alex Shepard, news editor at The New Republic, gives us insights on what could go wrong. And finally, Fidel Castro died this past week and Trump has already vowed to terminate the Cuba-US relations if he doesn't get what he wants from them. Spanish director Olatz Pérez Garmendia, whose new HBO documentary about Cuba is out this week, weighs in on the harm of Trump ending the new alliance. Never has a presidential candidate or president-elect used his or her Twitter account to connect so personally and frequently with the masses. Donald Trump is the first to use it at this scale, but his approach and how he's using it has raised many eyebrows. To expand on Trump's Twitter addiction and the impact it could have in the White House, I bring in Eli Stokols, a national politics reporter for Politico.com, who wrote an article this week titled, Trump's Twitter addiction could reshape the presidency. Eli, thanks for being on the podcast. Of course, good to be with you. Is the way Donald Trump using Twitter dangerous or savvy? Uh, You know, I mean, it may depend from tweet to
1: tweet how you answer that question. I mean, this is unprecedented, right? Twitter was basically not a thing in 2008 during that election. And in 2012, in our politics, up until Donald Trump, every politician, if they had a following on Twitter and no one had the 16 million, uh, 16.3 million followers that Trump now has, but most politicians kind of, you know, were they believed in Twitter because their communications people told them that it was a way to reach people. And there were communication staffers and interns who were, you know, running, doing these tweets. On the Romney campaign in 2012, I think they took a lot of flack because at one point it came out that there were 26 people who had to sign off on any tweet before it came from Mitt Romney's account. Wow. Well, Donald Trump's blown that up. Not only, you know, not only does Donald Trump recognize. The power of that audience as a way to agitate his supporters, as a way to sort of serve as a almost a news producer of sorts, a news director, but just you know tweeting something. He he changes the news cycle because suddenly you have the cable news uh, networks reacting to whatever he tweets. So there's immense power in that, partly because it's Trump doing the tweeting, and so many of the things that he's doing and saying are are to stoke controversy. Uh, They're outlandish. Some are insensitive. Uh, you know, what I mean, it's just Trump being Trump, but that platform enables him to do it without the usual media filter. And it is completely, you know, one directional. Uh, There's no give and take. He doesn't have to come out and do press conferences as long as the media is lapping up everything that he tweets out in 140 characters. Uh, And so there's immense power in that. And I think the other thing that obviously, you know, separates Trump from basically every other politician ever on Twitter is the degree to which he just does this himself and almost reflexively, and there's been a lot of debate of late about, you know, is he doing this intentionally? Is, is there more shrewdness to it? Is he tweeting out about, you know, two, two uh, million Americans voted illegally to distract from a, a devastating New York Times right. story about his sort of unprecedented conflicts of interest? Well, whether he's doing that or not, that that can be the effect, and that accrues to Trump's benefit as well. I think sometimes there is that sense or that need to connect with his base, that need for almost instant and constant gratification from people in that social media space. I mean, he wakes up in the morning and scrolls through his mentions, just <laughs> like you know, most people with a Twitter account. Right. And they check it out, and he does, he does this himself, right? He's interested in it. and so that Unbelievable. He, uh, and, and, you know, he just uses it in, in such an, uh, an interesting way. A lot of people you know, may say, well, now that he's president, you know, he shouldn't tweet as much. He should respect the uh, the office, you know, the stature of the office, and and you know somehow tweeting must be uh, beneath.
2: the the president or tweeting the way Trump tweets. Look, I've never seen anything like this from someone who is about to become a president. Uh, The personal vendettas against journalists such as CNN's Jeff Zeleny, his constant defense on criticisms, whether they're, uh, you know, childish criticisms or not, his reposts on Hamilton, the millions who voted illegally, the American flag. He never seems to take the high road on anything. It's like he's using Twitter to create a truth or a narrative exclusively from his own perspective, and I feel that's one of the dangers of him using Twitter. Now,
1: well, you're right, and you're talking about now something that's that's very serious, We're, and something that people who study more authoritarian regimes uh, recognize. You know, when a leader is really, you know, it's not about taking a high road; it's not about, you know, putting out a narrative that comports with facts that we all agree on. It's putting out a narrative that serves that leader that may not be fact based that may not line up with the reality that most people are seeing and experiencing and doing it really just for the purpose of demonstrating that they can i mean the media before this campaign did not have record high approval ratings okay that we were probably just above congress trump has Exacerbated that <laughs> sort of right. lack of trust. He's made that worse, and it, it is. I mean, you have to tip your hat to him. Even you know, if, if we're just talking about sort of pure politics, what he's done has really served him well. The United States and the American democracies always been undergirded by certain institutions, and the media is one of them. And if you completely weaken the media in a free press, um, you know that is one of those things that is scary to. Uh, a lot of people who do believe it. In- right more democratic, small D democratic ideals.
2: I want to bring up another topic because, uh, and it has a lot to do with what we're just talking about right now, was this chilling, ganging up effect that happens on Twitter that a lot of people don't necessarily notice, but but it happens to the victims, which is starting to arise from his tweets against his opposers. When he attacks someone on on, on Twitter, let's just bring up uh, Jeff Zeleny because he seems to be like the, the, the guy that uh, he's decided to pick on this week. It's not just him attacking Zeleni, but now it's the hundreds of followers that also are ganging up on him. It's almost like a beatdown by osmosis to a certain extent. Aren't there laws against this form of harassment on social media or is this something so new that we don't even know what to do with it?
1: I don't think there are any laws uh against trolling, you know, and and maybe uh that will be one of the uh maybe 8 years from now. Uh that might not be the case, but I mean, Jeff Zelany. you know, Donald Trump, I don't think even tweeted at him himself over the weekend. He started it by retweeting just a tweet attacking Zelany from an average, you know, person, no, you know, could have been anyone. And somebody popped up and they, uh, tagged Donald Trump in the tweet and he saw it because he does like to, uh, interact or at least appear to be interacting with, uh, his supporters by taking, you know, these people's tweets that he agrees with and retweeting them. The first time Donald Trump would go on Twitter and, and, you know, there'd be a spate of retweets from his account of just random people, uh, you know, criticizing his usual targets. Everybody said, oh, my God, Donald Trump is retweeting, you know, average Joes and wherever. (laughs) Which is kind of cool for the guy
2: that never thought that the president elect would ever retweet him. Well, there is a you know, and
1: that begets more tweeting mm-hmm. at Donald Trump and more trolling and and it just adds to this this you know, vortex that we're all living in. To a lot of people they love it. I mean, this is this is new, right? It is, it is
2: This is the new. The presidency
1: was never something the ne- presidency was never something anybody could really felt like they could put their finger on and touch. It has served him incredibly well to do it this way. Uh, I don't know if it will last, but you know, when he does when he does a lot of these things you know the the people love it because they see him kind of flying in the face of convention. The people who support him um believe that you know look he's he's retweeting this average person he's a real guy right It sort of um creates another spectacle another idea of Trump as sort of right. as every man when you know he's living in this gilded tower and appointing millionaires and billionaires to his cabinet uh you know he's 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 spinning several narratives at once
2: uh-huh.
1: uh you know, throughout his campaign and throughout the transition and will be during the presidency. I think, you know, it's the, we, we're all debating, like, how much method there is to this madness. But I think he recognizes and can sense certain issues that will rile people up. And, you know, as much as he says, well, I'm the president for all Americans now and I want to unite this country, you know, on Twitter, he's choosing he's choosing to talk about things that He's biased. continue to add more fuel to the fire of the country's culture wars.
2: It's like what you wrote, uh, quote, it is a blend of manufactured chaos and can't look away reality-style entertainment. And it seems to be affecting the media. He's like literally reconfiguring the way media operates today. It's like this whole tradition of breaking exclusives and landing scoops just isn't going to apply to Trump since he is the one that's breaking the stories on Twitter. He's taking control of his messaging. He's not allowing the media to create their own narrative. Uh, And it's something that uh, Ashton Kutcher actually started uh, because of the paparazzi. Um, And it was like a a, a way of of not allowing them to call him whatever it is that they wanted. How does this change the way journalists go about covering him moving forward?
1: Uh, How much time do you have? (laughs) That is... Yeah, you know, really, the fundamental
2: question. I mean, there's. Give me the three basic fundamentals of what we need to do.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know that I have that prescription for you. I, I, I wish I did. Um, I think it's you know we're assessing. Should that we ignore all it?
2: The time. Should we ignore no, it? No, I
1: don't. Th- I mean, you can't ignore. You know, when when the when the president elect tweets, there's this whole debate over normalizing. Are we normalizing his behavior by underreacting to it? Are we playing right into his hands by overreacting to it? Are we? Basically, you know, foaming at the mouth as a collective whole as a media <laughs> when we, you know, go, you know, lose our minds every time he tweets something that's ridiculous and disprovable and anti-democratic. Um, you know, when we do that, are we just sort of playing the role that he wants us to play? Basic standards of journalism still apply. Uh, He's just is a much more of an asymmetrical <laughs> target than anything any political reporter has ever seen before.
2: Two more questions. Uh, do you think he'll continue this approach into the White House? And if so, what are the negative impacts you can foresee already?
1: Everybody's saying, well, will Donald Trump take the at POTUS Twitter handle instead of at real donald trump well, at real donald trump's got 16.3 billion followers it's about four million followers than president obama has on oh his my official God. account so there is you know there's so much power in his online identity you know on that twitter account and the interactions as people tell me who have seen the dashboard the twitter dashboard in trump tower are not in the millions they're in the billions i mean this is an, an amazing way to communicate and will he use it to com- to communicate with world leaders i don't think he'll you know do the most uh, important negotiations the heavy lifting on twitter but in terms of moving public opinion i think he recognizes the value of that and probably will continue Incredible. to use twitter, uh, in some fashion i mean you see what he was able to do just with you know, complaining about Carrier in Indiana moving some jobs to Mexico.
2: Again, it's that false narrative that he's creating.
1: But he is amazing at, at you know, the optics and, mm-hmm. and, and the meta-narrative. And this is a place where he can go out <laughs> there. I mean, you know, we know there are going to be a lot of cameras on him when he shows up uh, and takes the stage and celebrates this. And that's what everybody's going to see. And so as far as, you know, putting on a show and telling a story, it has a chance to really be an effective mass communicator because he's been one to this point. A lot of that's based on Twitter. And, you know, I think you just look at, at his ability, whether it, whether it comports with facts or not uh, to tell a compelling story, to get all the eyeballs on him and, you know, to almost put forth a, a reality that it may be an alt reality, but it's his reality. And a lot of people believe it. And that there's, there's immense power in that. Um, yeah, he's a so living what,
2: megaphone, what that guy is. Yeah,
1: And I think I think there's no question that we will continue to see him do that and to partly do that on Twitter uh, in the White House.
2: And my last question is, uh, CEO Jack Dorsey has said that he will ban Trump if he breaks hate speech rules, but will Twitter really ban him? People are asking for it. Doesn't it help Twitter to have Trump uh, using their platform as a main tool for communication. My understanding
1: is Twitter's had a hard time uh, monetizing its model and has been has been struggling and in a bit of uncertainty. And so, yes, I would think this would be a boon for Twitter. And yet, it might be fine for Donald Trump if they did ban him, right? Like he's had these feuds with Fox News, with Morning Joe. He he banned whole you know news organizations, including the Washington Post for months, the Washington Post, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Trump relishes conflict and tension. And as predictable as, you know, if he, if he gets banned by Twitter, you know, then, then he'd get reinstated by Twitter and he'd have a conversation with him and they'd both probably get immense publicity. And at the end, everybody would be, um, you know, Better off for it. I mean, there's this right, ask Megan Kelly about her feud with Donald Trump
3: and how many books she sold <laughs> right. as a result.
2: You can read Eli Stokel's article, Trump's Twitter addiction could reshape the presidency on politico.com right now. Eli, thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, thank you. Enjoyed it.
2: At one moment in time, not long ago, imagining any president using the Oval Office for his or her own business game was inconceivable. But with Donald Trump's large business properties in direct conflict with his presidential position, many Americans believe that the moral reputation of the White House and America is in danger. Alex Shepard, news editor at The New Republic, joins me now to amplify the conflicts of interest of Donald Trump and his future presidency. Alex, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So, on November 30th of this week, Donald Trump wrote four tweets that addressed his conflict of interest between his business empire and his political standing. And to summarize, for those that are listening, he said that, though he's not mandated to do so, he's going to pass his empire over to his kids, which is the same to me as him still running it. Isn't this blind trust to his children still a conflict of interest?
4: Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely it is, uh... Normally, blind trusts are overseen by uh, independent entities, and the public uh, officials that are involved in them are supposed to have no knowledge of what happens to their assets. So President Obama, for instance, has a blind trust that's being overseen by uh, an independent arbiter. Uh, Donald Trump, by passing his uh, business empire over to uh, his adult children. Uh, you know the the children are not going to be independent. They will, you know, be uh, in contact with him regularly. They'll probably attend state dinners. I mean, Eric Trump right now is hunting with some mysterious uh, Turkish businessman. <laughs> Ivanka Trump has uh, Ivanka Trump has been on uh, phone calls with world leaders where Donald Trump has business interests. So there's no, uh, there's nothing to keep these two things separate, and more importantly, uh, anyone who deals with those children for, uh, you know, supposedly independent business reasons will know that they also have a direct line to the president of the United States, and that is the thing that makes this so
2: mortifying. Richard Nixon once said, "If the president does it, then it's not illegal." Where is the accountability if? Any of this happens? Well, right now there's
4: none, um, which is a problem. Actually, in Congress, there are really pretty clear rules about this because, you know, this has happened before in Congress. So, you know, we tend to uh, make laws retroactively. So when somebody does something corrupt or horrible and there isn't a law about it, they then will pass a law to make it so it's illegal. Uh, but in the case of the president, we just haven't had. We've had business people as presidents before. Incidentally, most of those presidents were terrible. Uh, Herbert Hoover was, you know, and George H. W. Bush were both um, were both businessmen. But uh, but the laws governing, you know, a president's private affairs are are relatively, uh, you know, they're relatively slight compared to those uh, governing Congress. Uh, one thing that could be done is that Congress in the lame duck, which is happening right now, could pass a series of laws that would restrict what Trump could do uh, in office or how Trump's business affairs could become entangled with his political positions. But no one on the Republican side of the aisle, which would control this, has shown any interest in doing that.
2: Here's a list that I, that I have about all the conflicts of interest that he has. The Secret Service detail, the property in Georgia, the phone call with Erdogan, uh, the Las Vegas labor dispute, the blind trust issue, the hotel in Washington, D.C., the Argentinian office building, the uh, his all his companies in Saudi Arabia, the British wind farm, uh, the Indian business partners, the envoy from the Philippines. I mean, if it was one or two, I can understand, but this is so many... I've said that he has 4 years where he could either be reelected or not but once he becomes a private citizen again he would have set up all the policies and the laws that would have allowed him to become even a better businessman than he when than, than when he entered being uh, the president.
4: Well, yeah, I think that, that that's right but I think that the other thing is just that and I think it maybe has been has been underreported is just how little that Trump has to do right now to make a boatload of money. Uh, while in office, I mean, you've already seen these deals get approved, you know, globally since he was elected and, you know, the, and, uh, and diplomats, you know, are booking suites in Trump hotels around the world because they think that it will help them get access to Trump. Uh, will it, I don't know, but that is almost, uh, beside the point because people are realizing right now that being in business with Trump is good for them politically or they think that it is. And he will make a ton of money, even doing nothing, because (laughs) his business empire is set up in this way that there are just so many opportunities for foreign actors to uh, pay him. And they're absolutely going to do it because they think that they can get something out of
2: it. You wrote in your article, the only way for Trump to truly avoid these conflicts of interest would be to sell his businesses. But Trump won't do that. Instead, He'll opt for obfuscation. Can you elaborate on that?
4: Yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of what, that's what giving control over to the children is, right? And it's sort of a classic Trump move. He can, uh, anytime a conflict of interest arises, he can say, no, my children manage, you know, my assets, uh, you know, that is more than what the law compels me to do. We don't talk about that. You know, how dare you even, you know, accuse me of being corrupt, you know, when I was elected on this anti-corruption platform. Uh, it's, he's basically done the bare minimum that any time he's accused of misdealing, he can just point at his kids and say they're in total control. I have great kids, uh, and sort of walk away. But that, you know, that was a sort of classic campaign uh, tactic for Trump. Right, any time uh, he was accused of any, you know, misdealing or misdeed, he. Would sort of inject just enough untruth, you know there's quite a bit written about his penchant for gaslighting, you know, whether it be uh, his accusations of sexual assault or his own policies, uh, and that's what he's going to do when asked about his conflicts of interest. He's sort of done just enough that he can always uh, have plausible deniability and if you look back at trump's business dealings, you know particularly in the 1980s when he's just getting sued left and right uh, and and you know. Uh, also committed, you know, felony level fraud multiple times, Uh, he uh, does the exact same thing. He lies on uh, SEC forms. You know, he lies to investigators and uh, he's going to do that as president, too. I mean, he's been doing it his entire life and it's not going to change now.
2: Alex, thank you very much for your insight. Alex Shepard is the news editor at The New Republic. Thank you for being on the podcast.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
2: With news of Fidel Castro's death this past week, HBO's Patria o Muerte, Cuba, Fatherland, or Death, from Spanish director Olatz Pérez-Garmendia, is more timely than ever. It is a realistic portrait of a country on the brink of change after 57 years of dictatorship through the testimony of its inhabitants. Olatz joins me now to discuss her documentary. Olatz, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. What was your initial reaction when you heard of Fidel's death this week? Are you elated? Sad? Apathetic?
3: I I don't know really how I felt. Yeah. Definitely, it was unexpected and, you know, surprising from everybody.
2: It's incredibly timely the way your um, documentary comes out this week, and this is the week that Fidel dies. I mean, you couldn't have timed it any better. I, I saw the, the whole documentary, and a lot of the people that speak in the documentary aren't very happy with Cuba. But then there's Cuban-Americans in Miami that are very happy. They were celebrating in the streets. Which one of the Cuban people are right?
3: Basically, I didn't do this film for Cuban people. It was more a film to inform people outside of Cuba because um, by going there for so many years, I realized that outside of Cuba, people didn't know so much what was going on. And I wanted to show uh, the part especially the part that people don't see. Um, Which ones are right? I don't know. I'm always more in contact with the people inside of Cuba. I I don't really uh, make this film for the Cubans from from Florida. Even if I, you know, uh, I have a lot of friends, there but i know they're more reactive and radical and i think this film is more about um you know life in cuba and the difficulties that that people are having there
2: speaking of difficulties how difficult was it to get this project off the ground i understand you did this documentary without the permission of the castro government
3: yes it was very difficult because um we didn't have permissions, so to film without permissions is extremely difficult. And also to um bring in and out of the country all the uh, memory flashes and uh hard drives it's very, very complicated. Um we needed to it took forever that's why it took so many years it was like a very crazy way to <laughs> to make a film
2: how did you get the citizens of cuba to speak so candidly and honestly against cuba was there any fear of retaliation from the cuban administration
3: there was not fear i mean in the film, there is like three blocks uh, of different kind of people the first block which is the the people from the street the regular citizens uh that group they didn't have any problem to speak because uh if you see in the film its people and they having uh, they are struggling and they are having uh, big difficulties uh, to survive and to solve the day by day needs you know so these people are talk to me You know, very openly, they never questioned anything, who I was or what I was going to do with the film. But I felt like the the needs were much stronger than the fear. So they they took that advantage of, you know, having a camera in front of them to to denounce the, the situation they were living some kind of way. Right. And then, you know, the other block, the intellectuals or artists and writers and all that, they always, they never have a problem to speak. And of course, the opposition, they take any possibility when there is a camera in front of them to say whatever they want to say. So <laughs> right. I, never felt, <laughs> I never felt like I put anybody in opposition in comfortable position uh, where they feel forced or, you know, uncomfortable to talk. They all did it because they wanted to do it.
2: Julian Schnabel is the executive producer of this documentary. Uh, did he suggest any documentaries for you to watch that influenced you in the way you made this film?
3: No. Julian came in the project where where oh, I already, you know, have like a... Um, trailer and a little maquette when I presented to him and right away he was you know interested and he he told me he wanted to help me uh, being an executive producer. But him and I have kind of very similar tastes uh also because, you know, we lived together for seven seventeen years and we did a lot of things together and um, both of us Uh, For example, to name one, fans of this documentary, Havana by Yana Bokova, Mm -hmm. is a a very, I mean, good documentary of the 90s, beginning of the 90s, that it was a, a very big inspiration for me.
2: Politically speaking, uh, President Obama decided to ease the embargo restrictions on Cuba, but now, this morning, uh, Donald Trump said, if Cuba is unwilling to make a better deal for the Cuban people, the Cuban-American people, and the U.S. as a whole, I will terminate the deal.
3: Oh, wow. My reaction, doesn't surprise. I mean, because I expect something crazy than could happen <laughs> with him. But... <laughs> I think it's it's crazy. It's crazy to, you know, to go back into something that President Obama opened in a very good direction, you know?
2: Do you think that Um, the United States and Cuba should have a good relationship moving forward?
3: Of course. Cubans, uh, you know, they need help and they need to come out of the situation they are and the approach that... uh, you know, President Obama uh, proposed and start, uh, it was a great approach. And Cubans from the island, they really celebrated and they were happy with it. <clears throat> so I think this now going backwards or closing the deal, like uh, Donald Trump suggests. It's crazy.
2: My last question to you is, what advice do you have for tourists who are interested in traveling to Cuba from the United States? What kind of mentality should they have when they arrive?
3: Well, I will suggest to, uh, you know, be a little bit sensitive to the people in Cuba. Uh, Cuba is not like going there like you go to the zoo or, (laughs) or to visit the... The Roman ruins, so, you know, it's a place very exotic, very beautiful, very unusual because it's stuck in the time, and it's very attractive, and, you know, the people are beautiful, the music is great, and those beautiful cars, the architecture is amazing, but I think it's not only about having fun and going dancing and going to the typical places, but you need to have a little bit of sensi- sensitivity to the people that live there because they are still having a really hard time. And the houses, the same ones where the people take the picture, in front of it, they are falling apart and, you know, if there is people living there. So... I think people should be a little bit sensitive. But I think they are, like, you know, uh, to respect, they, they get in the picture. You need to be blind to don't see the problem.
2: Thank you very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. The documentary, Patria o Muerte, Cuba, Fatherland or Death, is currently on HBO right now. Hola, thank you.
3: Thank you very much.
2: And that concludes our 13th episode of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I want to thank Eli Stokols, Alex Shepard, and Olaz Perez Garmendia for being on the show. I hope you like the show. And if you have any questions, please email me at highlyrelevant at or tweet at me at Jack Rico Official and share your opinions and thoughts on how you're feeling about Trump and our new dawn of American politics. Thanks for listening, and may God bless us all.